Amen. Please take your seats. Why don't we open uh, some of the doors just for a few moments? Let some uh, cooler air in. That would be good. Just, just the two bottom ones, and then you can close them. If I start shouting, although I don't intend to, you never know what might happen. It's great to see you here at the uh, five o'clock service. Uh, before we get into the word today, I just want to mention uh, in your um, revival times an encounter weekend that I'm going to be leading. It's on page 20, and it's for men and women, men and women. And it's going to take place on Friday the 6th to Sunday the 8th of July. So it's coming up. And this is a ready-to-lead encounter for men and women. And uh, this is for people that are ready to be a cell leader, ready for leadership in Kensington Temple, ready to start their cells, or perhaps somebody that's just started their cells and, and wants some help in breaking through. Or it could be somebody who um, you've been doing a cell for a while and you feel a bit rust, well not rusty, but you feel like you've, you've hit a wall, it's not working out as you'd like it, and you want to break through in your ministry. If you've not been on a ready-to-lead encounter, then this could well be the encounter for you. About to lead, just started leading, or leading and saying something's got to happen with my cell ministry. And during that weekend, I've got a special team that I've assembled together that are experts in, in this, well, what we consider experts, and we're going to be looking at subjects like faith that conquers, how to release your faith aggressively and powerfully to have a successful cell. Also, spiritual warfare and the leader. Sometimes we get into our lives where we reach a ceiling in our ministry or our cell life, and we try and break through, but then nothing happens, and what happens is we just tend to allow it to remain. We get used to it. So we're going to talk about how we, the importance, and we're going to do it as well, of spiritual warfare in the leader's life and ministry. The heart of a leader, we want to transform you from a sheep to a shepherd. We're also going to give you practical advice, and, and there'll be um, like a panel where you can ask questions about things. So if you're in one of those categories, just, to, just ready to lead, or start, just started leading recently, and you want some help in your cell leadership, or your cell is not really going like you want it to and you're wondering where I'm going to get some input for a breakthrough, then this weekend is for you and you can get hold of the um, registration forms from the stewards at the end and uh, it should be, should be good for all of us. Well, in your Bibles, if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, uh, we are in the greatest sermon that was ever preached a sermon that was preached by Jesus himself, the Sermon on the Mount. One of the most important parts of the New Testament for us to study. And it's wonderful that Colin has given me an opportunity to spend time with you in this. Because this Sermon on the Mount, this is what R.T. Kendall calls, he says, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is teaching on the Holy Spirit. And um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was R.T. Kendall's mentor when he was a young man, he says that the Sermon on the Mount is simply an exposition, an explanation of Jesus' commandment that we love one another as he loved us. 
And so this is very important as spirit-filled Christians because we are going to see principles and attitudes that are in the Sermon on the Mount that are going to help us understand and be ready to live the spirit-filled life no matter what comes our way. And so this is why we're spending time here. Um, Just a few books to help you. You might say, yeah, I'd I'd like to do a little bit more study on this, Bruce. I'm enjoying the Sundays. And of course, every if you miss a Sunday, every single one of our five o'clock services is on the internet, like all our Sunday services. And the title of, of the different sermons are there. So you can, you can find the ones that you haven't seen and catch up because the Sermon on the Mount needs to be understood as a whole. That's why you'll excuse me, regulars, if I recap a lot on these services. Recapping is good because if you're a regular by the end end of this series, if you've come on, on a number of occasions, you will understand the Sermon of the Mount at a very high level because of the recaps that come again and again. You'll see the context. Because the Sermon on the Mount is exactly that, a sermon. And where people go wrong on the Sermon on the Mount is they don't treat it as a whole sermon. They just pluck a little scripture out of the middle and then say, this is what it means, and not understand how it fits into the whole. And it's important that we recognize that. If you want to do more study, I recommend a smaller book here by our own senior minister, Colin Dye, called The Rule of God, one of his Sword of the Spirit series. And this book is on the Sermon on the Mount and how to apply it to a spirit-filled life, the rule of God. And then also, we're looking forward to having him come in the summer where he's going to launch uh, his new book, R.T. Kendall, on forgiving God. But until that happens, we are excited to push this book by R.T. Kendall. Uh, Some of uh, people are saying this is one of the best books he's ever written. And it's his book on the Sermon on the Mount. It's a bit thicker, but it's very, very readable. It's broken down into chapters. So I recommend, there's others, I recommend these two books for you if you want to um, study a little bit more in between or on the back of some of the things that that I am teaching you today. Wonderful. Okay, I'm going to read as as is in my habit uh, from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These, what we call the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes, this is how, this is Jesus' introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And it's important for us to understand that these are characteristics of the Spirit-filled Christian. These blessed Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is the type of character that the Holy Spirit wants to change us and mold us into, into the image of Jesus. I, I mentioned the Beatitudes because the rest of the Sermon of the Mount are illustrations and principles of how to live these characteristics. 
I remember quite a while ago, I used to preach the Beatitudes by themselves. I'd just go through, you know, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And that was great. But really, the thing is, once you've taught the Beatitudes, somebody might say, well, could you teach me what that means in my daily living? What does that mean in my marriage? What does that mean with difficult people that I, that I meet? What does that mean in real life? How do you... How do you have these characteristics? Because they all sound very, very nice. You know, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. But how, how, are you, how do you have a pure heart? And how do you see God in daily life? The rest of the Sermon on the Mount is an explanation of how the characteristics of the Beatitudes should be lived out in actual concrete situations. And so we've been looking at some of these. We, 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 we right now are, are, are in a place um, where we looked, and let me take you just in introduction again, into verse 20 of chapter 5, where Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, what Jesus is saying is this, and, and the people were amazed, how can we be more righteous than the doctors and professors and rabbis and teachers and Pharisees who obey all the laws of Moses and are so religious? Well, Jesus was saying that a time was coming when we would live at a level of righteousness that the law couldn't touch. Because the law of Moses only deals with the external parts of human life. The law of Moses never deals with the heart. But the new covenant, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it's all about what's going on on the inside of you. And then how that affects your life. So the law looked at the outside, and we've looked at some examples of this, and said, don't commit adultery. Ah, but what if I am in my heart? And the law says, not interested in that, just don't do it. The law said, don't commit, don't commit murder. Okay, I won't commit murder, but I'm, I'm really angry and hateful in my heart against this person. The law says, I don't care, just don't commit it. But the Holy Spirit says, it is important what's in your heart. It is important. Uh, the, the Bible says, uh, the law says, don't commit adultery. Ah, but I'm lusting in my heart for this person or that person. The Lord says, I'm not interested in what's in your heart, just don't do it. Can you see how I'm showing you? But the gospel, the good news, the Holy Spirit, the New Testament says what matters is what's going in your heart because it's, it's the, tr uh, the heart of the trouble is trouble in the heart. So the righteousness of the spirit-filled Christian, the born-again Christian, is not external, it's not religious. But the righteousness that we have is cooperating with the Lord, with the Holy Spirit. And it's a work that begins on the inside, in the hearts. And so this righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees, that's what we've been looking at. And we have, we have six statements that lead us into chapter, um, chapter 6. But six statements in chapter 5 that are examples and illustrations and principles of how to live the spirit-filled life that exceeds the righteousness of the external law. And I mentioned some of them. Thou shalt not kill. You have heard it said, don't kill. Uh, but I say, don't be angry. You have heard it said, 
do not commit adultery, but I say whoever lusts for somebody in their heart has already committed it. Committed it. You have, you have heard it said, uh, and then we, then, we, then we, sorry, that's the first two. And then we looked, didn't we, last week at divorce. Do you remember that? And Jesus spoke about divorce, a very important session. If you, didn't, if you weren't here last week, I really encourage you to listen to that free on, on our media because so many Christians don't know how to deal with divorce. And we spent some time looking at that. And of course, the Pharisees, that they, uh, they believed and, and they said to Jesus, we think it's permission to divorce for any reason. A man could divorce his wife for burning the toast. Well, the men said, that's reasonable. <laughs> course it isn't and we looked at that because they were trying to find loopholes in the law but Jesus was teaching how somebody who had the beatitudes would 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 deal with a marriage in a situation like that uh, we're now going to today look at the oaths and vows and the title of my sermon today actually is um, spirit-filled speech spirit-filled speech so we're going to have a look at the, the, the uh, fourth of the statement, oaths. And then next week, we're coming to a very, very quite difficult one to teach. Um, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And what do you do when someone slaps you on the cheek? And maybe we'll have some test cases up here and see how you respond and see if your spirit filled or not. So we're going to do that next week. And can I encourage you, if you're coming to the five o'clock service next week, get here on time at five o'clock. The reason I say that, come in, get there on time anyway, but get there on time at five because I will be teaching earlier in the service uh, than I am today. I'll be, I'll be preaching from 20 past because I want a full teaching, but then it means that we can finish a little bit earlier in preparation for our seven o'clock graduation. So just to let you know that. All right. So these are not laws. Jesus was not bringing a new law. And this is, the po this is the important point when we look at these six examples. They're not new external laws. They're principles and examples of how a spirit-filled person would deal with these issues in their lives. We don't obey the letter of the law, but the spirit. So you don't just take these examples and go, oh, a new law. No, it's not like that. We say, ah, that's an interesting example, and I can look at that example, and I can, um, and I can see how that would work in other areas of lives. I'm training you in the spirit. These are what these five o'clock, it's being trained in the spirit. I want you to get these principles, not in a legalistic way, and I don't think you are, and I don't think I'm teaching it. I want you to get the spirit, the attitude, the beatitudes that are behind these examples of spirit-filled living, these examples of how to obey Jesus' command, love one another. Because Jesus says, you know, love one another as I've loved you. And you say, well, what is love? What is love? Colin said this morning, don't get your understanding of love from Hollywood. But what is love? Sometimes love can feel a bit, what, I can't really grasp what's love in action. Well, this is love in action. This is, these, these are how you deal in situations as a loving, spirit-filled, beatitude person. And so we are looking now um, at verse 21, chapter 5 and uh, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients, oh sorry, 
No, I've got the wrong. Sorry, I wrote it wrong. Ah. Uh, chapter, sorry, chapter 5, verse 33. I don't know why I wrote that down. Oh, it's because it was the wrong sermon. <laughs> okay, there we are. I was in the wrong sermon. You're going to get another one of the same two weeks ago. Okay, Spirit-filled speech, chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told... You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your, head, by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is evil. All right? Now, can I just uh, make a statement to those up in the TV gallery? Um, can you please make sure that you're using the camera default one in front of me on close-ups because it's, um, I'm getting the side camera and that shouldn't be used for close-ups as the default. It's, it's just a little thing that, um, that is bugging me, so um, if we can just <laughs> make sure that. You don't want me bugged, do you? Even if I am being a bit, a bit trying to direct, and I'll be doing the sound next, but the sound's very good. Thank you up there. Appreciate it. All right, all right. Bruce is um, getting back to the Word of God. So, here we have this. Uh, you shall not make false vows, but you shall ful fulfill your vows to the Lord. Well, Jesus has been dealing with some... Thank you, that's much better. Jesus has been dealing with um, some of the commandments, hasn't he? The Ten Commandments. And showing a righteousness that is greater than the Ten Commandments. So, he's spoken about uh, the commandment, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. Well, here, Jesus is now dealing with the third commandment. The third commandment. And um, the third commandment, found in uh, Numbers uh, chapter 30, 30, verse 2, is this. You shall not take the name of your Lord, the Lord your God, in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. You shall not take... The name of the Lord your God in vain. We're talking about spirit-filled speech. Now, he doesn't directly quote the third commandment. Uh, no, he, he quotes some of the other parts of the law. For example, he quotes, um, When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but he must do everything he said. In Deuteronomy 6.13, fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. So we see that the law speaks about honoring the name of the Lord, not taking it in vain, and it also speaks about making oaths and vows. Now, why did they make oaths and vows? And why did the law speak about oaths and vows? Let's get a little bit of background on what Jesus is talking about so that we can understand him properly. Well, what is happening here is the law came in to bring external obedience and to bring order to a disorderly nation. 
Do you remember how bad the children of Israel were in the wilderness, according to Hebrews, and, uh, and that they rebelled against God, they didn't believe his word, and the law came to sort them out and regulate them like a school teacher would come in with discipline and punishments and rewards to to discipline and regulate and bring into order a disruly class. The law is a tutor, a teacher. And when it came to oaths, it regulated oaths because in those days, they, they didn't have all these lawyers. So if you wanted to sell a field or buy a house from someone, well, you didn't really have lawyers that you could go to that would sign up a legal document and uh, you would sign that legal document. You know, the sort of things that we, that we take today for granted, the legal network. No, many of these things would be done uh, by the shaking of hand or by just relationship. And so the oaths or the vows to do something, the oaths or vows were to bring something that nobody could break. It was like, so the deal is I can buy that field for a certain amount of money. Yes, that's right. And then three weeks later, the person changes his mind. Well, if you took an oath in the Lord's name, then you wouldn't break that. And so if, I say, if we swore on an oath that this is what we were going to do together, and you see this happen in the Old Testament, people swearing on oaths together, making covenants together. If we swore on an oath that we would do something, it was almost like a legally binding thing today. Do you see what I mean? Only it was religious, it was spiritual. And so the regulation of oaths, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but do everything he said. Fear the Lord your God, serve only at him only and take your oath in his name. So when someone said in the name of the Lord or took an oath, you know that they wouldn't change that. And we see examples of that in the Old Testament. And so oaths were important. And we, and we see, it's like people say, well, how do I know I can trust you? How do I know that you will do what you're saying? Are you telling me the truth? Will you keep your word? And oaths were, were the, well, I swear by God Almighty that I'm telling the truth. Or, well, I, I give an oath in the name of the Lord that I will do what I've said to you. Or I vow in the name of, of the Lord that I will fulfill my promise. You see, a promise was one thing, but an oath or vow was something even stronger. And you might already be going ahead of me saying, well, shouldn't your promise be as be, be as be good enough without an oath, but a promise is one thing, and, and a promise was, was may or may not happen. It was dependent on things. But an oath or a vow was a guarantee of the promise. I swear by Almighty God, wasn't like, well, I promise I'll do it if I can, but to swear Almighty God, you would rather die than, than break that oath, because it was believed that when you take an oath in the name of the Lord, this is what happened. The moment you took an oath and you said, you know, um, I swear by Almighty God, I will do this. They believed that the moment you said that, you are now just not promising a human being. No, I'll do this for you. But now you are promising God that we would do it. So to take an oath in the name of the Lord 
was to bring God into the heart of what you're saying and whether or not you wanted to do it, it was God you were now speaking to. So if you swear in the name of the Lord that you would do something, now it's the Lord that's looking to see if you're going to do it. Do you see what I mean? So it brought the Lord, Lord, Lord in and it also confirmed the promise. Oaths and vows, therefore, were there to regularize business and society and to cement society. You know, there's nothing worse than being in a situation where, where, where people lie and tell you all sorts of things. Do you know that there are, some, there are some places in the world, and maybe you know some of them, I've been to some of them, where people will lie through their teeth. It's their culture. You, you, you know, you expect people to tell the truth. I know it's changing, and, but in the Western world... You do, you're brought up to think that when someone tells you something, generally they mean it. Generally, you can trust someone's word. But there are places in, in the world where you can go, and someone will tell you one thing and do totally different things and not even think that it's wrong. Not even, and so you can go into some culture, some places in the world, and you just can't trust what anybody's saying. And, and, and that's terrible, isn't it? Because it's very hard to do business. It's very hard to, to do anything when somebody says one thing and does another and they don't even care. And you get to that place where, where, where you don't believe what anybody's telling you, whether it's in shops or in taxis or whatever. You just, you know, you just don't. And so that is very destructive for the growth and well-being of people, community, and society. So the oath and the vow came in to cement that to bring assurance to people's dealing with one another. Let's have a few examples of oaths and, and, and vows before the law. I mean, we see in Genesis chapter 24, because this, this, this was, as I said, without lawyers and, and legal centers, the vow and the oath was something that was very important to people at that time. So Genesis chapter 24, let's have a look at Abraham. Because we need to do the background here before we apply this to our spirit-filled lives. Or we won't know what Jesus is talking about. Because Jesus is talking about righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. So he's going to deal with the Pharisees' righteousness in a minute. So to understand the Pharisees' righteousness in oaths and vows, we have to understand what they believed in their background. Do you understand what I'm saying? Otherwise, we'll be making comments about things we don't know. Genesis chapter 24 and verse 2. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he ho owned, please place your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife from my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. So here we have Abraham. And it wasn't enough for his servant just to say yes. This was so important to Abraham that he did the nearest thing he could to a legal contract, which of course he didn't have in those days. He said, swear by almighty God, do this act. Because he knew that if the servant did that, it was as good as done. The servant would rather die than not fulfill a vow. If it was just a promise or, yeah, I'll do it, well, situations and circumstances can change and it may not have happened. It was too important to Abraham. He needed 
an oath. It's still in Genesis. Let's go to Genesis chapter 47 and verse 29 and see Jacob asking Joseph for an oath. Genesis 47 and verse 29. When the time came for Israel, uh, that's, that's Jacob, to, 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 when the time came for Israel, Jacob to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. He said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Can you see, to Israel it was very important to him that, he, that his body was taken to the right place. He didn't want it left where it was. And he could have said, couldn't he, to, to, you know, to Joseph, would you do this for me? But he wanted to know for sure, and a promise wasn't enough. He wanted to have this thing rested in his mind before he died. So he said, give me an oath. It was the nearest thing he had to a legal contract. Give me an oath, and then I know that you will do this. And interestingly enough, and this is going to help us understand what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 26, 62, we see Jesus on oath. And this is important because Jesus is talking about not doing oaths. And so we see an oath that Jesus will do. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 62. Now, to begin with, Jesus is remaining silent. He's not answering the questions. And then here we are in um, Matthew 26 verse 62. The high priest is speaking to him. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds in heaven. So he didn't answer, but out of respect for the position of the high priest and the oath, when the high priest said, on oath by the Lord, tell me, Jesus responded to it. He answered truthfully and accurately about what had he been asked out of respect for the high priest who asked him, on oath. You know, God also swears on an oath. We see this very much spoken about in Hebrews um, and Genesis 22 verse 16. Now, when, now God had given Abraham many, many promises right from the beginning, hadn't, hadn't he? But it wasn't until Abraham was prepared to sacrifice Isaac on the mountain that God then swore an oath. And he said this in Genesis chapter 22, verse 16. He said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Now, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13, I'm not going to go there, but just to let you know that Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13 and Hebrews speaks about this oath. 
God gave a promise, but the promise was in many ways dependent on Abraham's faith, okay? Abraham had to believe. So God gave him a promise. Remember that God gave the children of Israel a promise, didn't he, when they came out of Egypt? He gave them a land of promise. He gave them the promised land. Now, Abraham believed the promise. He made loads of mistakes. I mean, I mean he, at times he didn't believe. He had his Ishmael, but in the end he grew and matured in faith and he believed the promise. And, he, and this is what he said to himself. He said, you want me to sacrifice my son? Well, you have told me that in Isaac my seed will be blessed. So if you're telling me to slay my son, then you'll just have to raise him from the dead. That was the thinking of Moses, Hebrews tells us. So he had such faith that God could raise his son from the dead, that, that he, was, he was up for it. And God says, you don't need to do it. You've shown that you have faith in me as the resurrector. And then he says, I swear by myself. Or Hebrews says, I swear on an oath. And Hebrews tells us that what's God going to swear on that's greater than himself? He couldn't swear by the temple. It's greater than the temple. Well, there wasn't a temple at that time. But you know what I'm, talk you know what I'm talking about with Abraham. So he says, I swear. The moment he gave his oath, it meant that this thing could not be stopped or started in any way. It was now no longer simply a promise to be believed. It was done and dusted. He swore an oath to the children of Israel, didn't he, as well, that were in, in, in the wilderness. He gave them a promise and he said, I'll take you into the promised land. But they didn't believe the promise. They rebelled. They were wicked. And the day comes, both the Old Testament and Hebrews tells us, when he swore on his oath, you shall not enter into my rest. Do you remember that? He swore on his oath. What did that mean? At the moment he swore on his oath, it was too late. God chided and told those people to get themselves sorted out in the wilderness again and again. The promise was still there. And he was saying, I'm giving you another chance. I'll give you another chance. I'll give you another chance. I'll give you another chance. And then God said, it's over. And swore in his oath. And they said, oh no, you'll give us another chance. And they went in. And they got their backsides kicked right back into the wilderness. And that's where they died because God swore in his oath. So you can see the difference, can't you, between the promise and the oath. And that God does use promises, and he does use oaths. This is simply background. Paul himself, he used oaths. In Romans chapter 1, verse 9, he was saying, God is my witness. Uh, in Galatians chapter uh, 1, verse 20, he says, I assure you by God I am not lying. And so this is the background. Now, the Pharisees, if they could find a loophole in the law, they would. I mean, we've just seen how they dealt with divorce. They were giving out certificates as they wanted to, using the loopholes of the law to fulfill their own uh, adulterous hearts. And we saw how also it didn't matter that they wouldn't cross the line and physically murder somebody, but they were, they were murdering people's reputations left, right, and center. They are always looking for loopholes. And legalism will always give you a loophole. Legalists look so clean on the outside, but on the inside, like Jesus said, oh, you're white on the outside. Looking so good on the outside, but on the inside, it's dead men's bones. You see, you can follow the law externally and look good, but God's looking at your heart. And so, what were they doing with, with, with these? Well, Jesus shows us what they were doing. They were finding loopholes in what the law taught about oaths and vows. 
and uh, Jesus is telling us, he says, you know, you shall not make false vows. This is verse 33 of chapter 5. But you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I tell you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Now, why is he mentioning all these different types of oaths? Because there was different types of oaths that these Pharisees were using. And some were more binding than others. You see, they thought to themselves, you know what? If we make each other make an oath that I do this in the name of the Lord or, or in the name of Almighty God, I swear an oath, then we are fixed exactly to what we're saying. So where's the loophole there to be able to say one thing and do another? So they brought in a whole bunch of different oaths and vows and some oaths were binding, and some oaths were not binding. And you had to be a clever scholar. You had to have a PhD in oaths and, 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 and vows to understand whether the oath they were giving you was binding or not. In fact, there was a commentary on the Old Testament called the Mishnah. And this Mishnah told you or taught you what oaths were binding and what oaths didn't mean anything. So, for example, in the Mishnah, if you swore by Jerusalem, so in other words, I swear by Jerusalem, I will sell you my car. If I swore by Jerusalem, the Mishnah says it's not binding. So I could change my mind. And you'd say, but you swore by Jerusalem. I went, ah, haven't you read the Mishnah? It's only if you swear towards Jerusalem that it's bounding. This is true. This is in the Mishnah. So if I said, I swear to you towards Jerusalem that I'll sell you the car, then it was binding. And there was all sorts of, of these types of things. And, and you say, was that really going on? Were they really making up and changing vows? And some vows were weaker and some vows were stronger. And so there was a whole group of vows that if you were clever, and this is what legalists are, clever. If you were a clever Pharisee, you'd know when to drop the weaker vow. And if the person didn't know, then it gave you more space to wrangle and do whatever you wanted to do in the first time while keeping them seemingly happy. You say, was this really going on? Yes, let's go to Matthew chapter 23, 16. Matthew 23, 16. Matthew 23, 16. Was this going on? Yes. Yes. Woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple that's nothing but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated can you see that's they're doing it you fools blind men which is more important the gold of the temple that, uh, that sorry which is more important the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold and here they go again and whoever swears by the altar that is nothing but whoever swears by the offering on it, he's obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears by both the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So can you see Jesus saying this is a joke? Remember they used oaths and vows as sort of 
religious legal terms, because it didn't have all the legal stuff that we had today. So the clever thing was, was to know which vows to use and which vows not to use. Which vows you could get away with. And of course, the vow you couldn't get away with was by Almighty God. And so Jesus was saying, temple, golden temple, sacrifice, altar, it's all God. And so when you swear on any of these things, it should be, it's just as if you're swearing by God. So stop dealing with people in double talk. You know, ah, I, I, I vow by the temple. And you go, oh great, Bruce is going to do what he said. And then three weeks later, you didn't do what you said. Ah, because I vowed by the temple, not the gold. You need to study your Mishnah. Can, what sort of, is that, is that the example of a beatitude person? Remember, all of these that we're looking at are examples of how a spirit-filled beatitude person works out love. Does a person in love do that to other people? Use language that, that, that they take that's, that promises something, but in your mind you know that you're selling them a lie, or you're throwing them a curveball, or, you, or you're allowing them to think something that you have no intention of doing or saying. Is that spirit-filled living? Is that loving your neighbor? Is that pure in heart? Is that blessed are those that seek after righteousness? Can you see how all these are examples of the beatitude, spirit-filled, born-again believer? And so, when Jesus says back there in 5 verse 33, that you shall not make false vows, but I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Well... I have made hair white black. But in those days, they couldn't. But we're talking about the spirit of things, aren't we? You see, when you swore by your head, that had a meaning. The Pharisees, when they swore, it meant, I'll try. I may do. So all these oaths and things, it, it made conversation crazy. The law came and it only dealt with the outward situation. And it came to try and bring order to a lawless society so that people would be good for their word. But the Pharisees had ruined it because they'd found all these loopholes so that they could say that they were obeying what the law said, but really they weren't. They, they, were, they, they, had, they had changed it all. James chapter 5 verse 12 echoes this. James chapter 5 verse 12. Above all, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. We see this, Jesus saying that, verse 37. Let your yes be yes, no, no. And James is quoting his half-brother Jesus. Now, when we look at these, we, we found that in history, some people have taken this literally. Remember, what we're seeing in the Sermon on the Mount is not a new law. It's not literal new laws to be, to be obeyed externally, but we're to see them as examples and principles that are to be learned spiritually so that we can take these examples as examples. So that whatever we face in, in our lives, the teaching and examples of the Sermon on the Mount will soften our heart to the voice of the Spirit. Now, people like, have you ever heard of the Quakers? Well, the Quakers, very powerful in their 
early days, very spirit-filled and charismatic in their early days. And um, they took this literally as a law, a new law. And they, to this day, refuse to swear on an oath in a courtroom. Because they say Jesus said um, that, that you shouldn't give, make no oath at all. So they refuse to do it. They say, let my word be yes and my word be no. Now, does that mean that therefore we, when we go to court, should not swear an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing by the truth and perhaps hold, hold a Bible? And the American president, when he's sworn in, puts his hand in the air. I think he still puts his hand on a Bible. I don't know if that's changed, but puts his hand and swears an oath of office. No, I don't, remember, we're looking at the spirit here, aren't we? And not the law. And that Jesus is dealing with the excesses of the Pharisees. We're looking at it in context. There's no reason to do this legally because you're doing this for a legal reason, in a court reason. There's no reason not if they ask you to do that for a legal reason for you not to do that. That's the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. That is not what Jesus is really speaking about. He's talking about everyday dealings with one another. Every day's conversation. And what is he saying? This is what he's saying. We've looked at the background. Let's apply it to us today. He's saying your words, your conversations, your dealing with people should be honest. Honest. Open. Simple. Straightforward. Plainly. Plain. With integrity. We shouldn't deceive people or let them think something knowing full well that's not what we mean. That's not loving your neighbor. And these oaths and vows, they were just techniques for manipulating, manipulating people. Techniques for making people think something that you want them to think and have no intention of doing, giving you outlaws. Out. And of course, the Pharisees were doing all this manipulation, double speaking, messing people around, not being open, not being simple, not being straightforward, not being plain, not thinking about... Where the, what the other person was thinking or understanding about a situation. They were doing the opposite, and yet they were standing up saying, look how self-righteous we are. We, we, we abide by our vows and our oaths. They were lying snakes. Not my words, Jesus' words. Vipers brood. Jesus had some nice descriptions for, for people that lived not by the Spirit, but by the law. But also, I want to bring out this. You see, at the heart of these vows was the name of God, the name of the Lord. They were bringing God's name into disrepute. They were using his name, his temple, whatever way you want to do it. Jesus said, it's all God's. And they were using God's name for selfish gain. And we have to be careful that we don't do a modern form of this in the charismatic church. Here's one. It's not an oath, but it's nearly one. God told me. God told me, God told me, Pastor Bruce, to leave Kensington Temple. Oh, did he? Yes. Well, there's nothing I can do about that. There's not even a conversation to be had. Because God told you. And charismatics so easily just talk about what God told them to do. You know, maybe, maybe we just say, I've decided to do this and I believe it's the right decision. No, God's got to tell us. No, if you want to leave, leave. But don't blame God. Or don't, don't say nobody can discuss it with you. 
Because how can I discuss with a person whether they should leave the church or not when they say, the Lord's told me to leave? Man, that drives me. That gets me so angry. Am I allowed to be angry and not sin? Ah, yeah, angry and not sin. It gets me so angry. And charismatics are dropping the Lord in everything. Well, the Lord told me to do this. Well, the Lord spoke to me about that. And whoa, 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 whoa. Doesn't sound like my Lord. And sometimes I've been a bit cheeky. When I've had these super spiritual people saying, the Lord told me this, that, and the other. And it's ridiculous. It's just an excuse to get away with something. I just say, oh, oh, the Lord just told me that he didn't tell you that. And then you've got this beautiful situation. Because it's like they said the Lord said this. And I just said, said to them, oh, oh. The Lord just told me that he didn't say that to you. They don't know what to do. Oh, no, I've told you. I won't be able to try it on you, you spiritual ones. And then it's like, okay, all right, we've got a problem here. We have got a problem here because one of us is hearing God and one of us isn't. And I've been in the ministry for a number of years. So if we're taking bets, I know who I'd put it on. But we're not, are we? So, can you see what I'm talking about? That's like an oath. Trying to get the weight of God Almighty's authority behind a decision that you want to make. Far better to sit down and say, Bruce, I'd like to sit, sit with you because I'm thinking of leaving Kensington Temple. And I want to tell you the reasons. And I want to see if this is the right reasons. And if this is actually God doing something. And I want to talk to you about it. Hello. That's spirit-filled talking. That's open, integrity discussing, trying to find the mind of God, whereas just to bring God into it, God told me, shuts down everything. It's just like the Pharisees. How, am I, how are we meant to respond to one another when people are saying, God told me? Also, that's close to, thus saith the Lord. Now, God does speak today. And there's ways of saying, I think the Lord is speaking to you about this, that, and the other. There's things of saying it. But thus saith the Lord... And tell you what, you better be a tried and tested prophet before you start saying, thus saith the Lord all the time. I'm not saying that there aren't occasions when you do. I've done that myself, but I tell you what, when I say, thus saith the Lord, I, I, I am like, put, I, I think, my God, you know, I've said it and I want to say it, but that's a powerful thing to say to somebody, thus saith the Lord. And sometimes it's the right place to do it if you're mature, and even that needs testing. So I'm not saying we don't say it, but again, in the charismatic world, people say it too much. You know, why not just say, do you know what I was thinking? I think that you should do this, that, and the other. And see if God's on it, instead of like blaming God for it. So we need to think about these things. I mean, even the way that people use the name of the Lord on Facebook, constantly posting about the Lord this, the Lord that. Now, I think Facebook is a great place for witness. But sometimes I get really, oh God, we... Do you really mean what you're posting? Or is this one of the five things from God you post every day? Because I don't even see you living the life in church and you're out there on Facebook posting and pontificating about God's this and God's that and God's the other. Do you know what? Let your life do the talking. Let your life do the talking. I'm not saying you shouldn't post on Facebook like what a great service this was and everything like that. There's a place for that. But you know, if you're on Facebook, isn't it true? Some people, they post stuff, even though it's Christian, they post it and it gets a bit tiring after a while. You think, are they really actually doing this spiritually? You know? And um, 
So, and spiritual talk. So many people hide behind spiritual talk. It's like the Pharisees. You can, you can, you can talk the language of Zion and have the devil in your heart. Oh, I've seen it. You, you, you can say, you could, I, I've sat down with people, nobody here, some from other services. I've sat down with people and they have, and they have spoken such spiritual sounding words about how close they are to the Lord and how this, that and the other. And all the time, the message that they're delivering is venomous. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Sugary, sweet, you know, you know, you're surprised they're not raptured. Yet all the time, they're assassinating somebody else. You know, it's like, oh, I need to tell you something about brother so-and-so for prayer. For prayer. No. Why don't you just go up to them and say, I've got some great gossip and I don't care that it's gossip. You're going to love it. Why not? Why not? I have heard something so juicy. I shouldn't tell you, but I don't care. I'm going to repent later. It's about brother so-and-so. Instead of like, oh, bless the Lord. We need to pray, sister, brother, for brother so-and-so. I just heard the news. I remember going back to Facebook. This is a true story. I mean, if I could have climbed in Facebook and outside the other Facebook and dealt with that brother just as well. And it was, on, it was on a minister's site. And, and it posted publicly on the Facebook. He said, oh, just heard that so-and-so has been stepped down for ministry. Such a shame. He was such a blessing. We must pray. Do you see what I'm saying? It's the speech, the spiritual speech. Oh, but he posted it for everybody to see. And that this is the truth of the matter. Most people didn't know that that person had been stepped down. And do you know what? The person hadn't been stepped down. The person was ill. It's a true story. The person was ill. And so spiritual talking, we can hide behind. Is that the beatitude, Christian? Is, is that the, uh, the, the love your neighbor as yourself? No, it's not. It's not spirit-filled talking. Spirit, and neither is speaking the truth in love. Yeah, I want to have a word with you. I'm going to speak the truth in love. In other words, I'm going to tell you everything that's wrong with you and sort you out, oh, in love. It's like the in love is the thing you tag on the end to make it Christian, isn't it? No, do you know what speaking the, the truth in love is? It's speaking the truth for the sake of the person. Not, often when you speak the truth in love, you don't even want to say it. But faithful of the wounds of a... Not faithful of the wounds of an enemy who's angry and is going to tell you everything that's wrong with you. And speaking the truth in love, sometimes it's not right to speak the truth to the person at that particular moment. Right, a young man gets up and preaches his first sermon, you know, and it's awful. I mean, it's all over the place. And the young man comes, you know, to me and says, oh, how did you think I do? And it's his first sermon. And I say, I'll speak to you the truth in love. It was awful. It was terrible. And let me go through everything that was wrong. I mean, I am going to take your very few young preachers could cope with that, could they? 
It's the truth, but it's not in love. So how would you do it? Well, you'd take the person and you'd say, look, you know, you're developing. If there is anything worthy of praise, why? Because I'm thinking about that person. I'm thinking about them growing. I'm thinking about encouraging. I'm thinking about them. You know, if they're constantly not changing, then you have to give a little bit more. I'm thinking about what's best for the person. Do you hear what I'm saying? So this sort of like, well, I just speak the truth in love. You know, well, yeah, you're going around beating everybody up. You know, when someone comes to me and says, I want to speak the truth in love to you, I say, no, thanks. No, no, I don't want, no, lie to me, please. Lie to me, please, because I don't want the truth. Whereas if someone I respect and know, like Collins says, you know, I, I want to speak into your life, I say, do it. Do it, even if I don't like it, do it, because I know that you love me. And I know that there's no way you'd speak stuff to me intentionally in order to wound me unless you wanted to correct me and take me forward. So this is quite an important passage, isn't it? That we've looked at oaths and vows and how we've seen the Pharisees uh, use this for manipulative speech and that Jesus is saying, look, you know, you, most of the time you shouldn't need to use the name of the Lord. Most of the time you shouldn't do that because people should know that you're open, that you're honest, that you, that you mean what you say. We all make mistakes. You know, we all, we all don't make a meeting or forget something, but there's something genuine about the heart. We don't have, because when somebody says, oh, no, honestly, I'm telling you the truth. Oh, I swear by Almighty God, I'm telling you the truth. Why do you have to do that? Because a person doubts. But when you live the spirit-filled life and love and are open and are growing in these things, in these words, and you say, look, let me tell you something. This, this is the truth. They say, okay. Well, if you said it, I know you. I know your character. I don't have to push you into a corner where you swear by God because you have a proven character, a proven voice. You're not fork-tongued, but your mouth is overflowing out of a spirit-filled heart. We're not all there, and you don't have to be perfect, but this is a wonderful example of the righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees because it's God working on the inside and coming out in love, speech that is clear, loving, caring, and words of spirit, words of truth, laced with love. God bless you all.